people with self-confidence will take risks. They'll go to school. They'll, they'll try out for that position. They'll put in for the uh, transfer or the promotion. They will take on the responsibility. So the confidence gets them to that position, but yet the internal dialogue in their head makes them doubt not, their, not even their ability, but their right to be there. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 39 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Maureen Zapala, who's the founder and CEO of High Altitude Strategies. Now, she's a mechanical engineer who has reinvented herself into an outstanding speaker with a powerful message. Maureen and I start our conversation off by talking about how she became a better speaker by joining Toastmasters. Now, she's still involved with Toastmasters and have moved from competing in competitions like the World Championships to providing content to Toastmasters Monthly Magazine. She's currently writing an article about the corporate Toastmaster clubs at Harley Davidson. (laughs) Now that's cool. She also states that a recent Toastmaster poll on why did you join Toastmasters and the number one reason was to get past the fear of public speaking, not to become a better speaker. Listen carefully to when Maureen talks about surviving the fear of public speaking. Great advice. Then we discuss her current speaking business and how her business changed after reading the book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, and it was about the imposter syndrome. That's when she had her aha moment because she had felt that way every day she went to work at NASA. She lived it and built her business around this topic. Now, the imposter syndrome is a concept describing high-achieving individuals who are marked by the inability to internalize their accomplishments and have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. You know, it's a story that you have in your head. We all fight it, and Maureen has some great advice to help you move past this syndrome. As I reflect on this episode and the principles of improvisation, this is very much a yes and interview. Yes and is implied throughout the entire conversation from getting past your fear of public speaking to dealing with the imposter syndrome. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that one of my goals with this podcast is that I'll help you begin to make changes in your work and your personal lives so you can better connect with others and create meaningful relationships. Many people have said that it takes 21 days to start a habit, which I just learned this week from Dr. John B. Molitor, PhD. That's incorrect. John is the Dean of Psychiatry and Community at Michigan State University. He said that the research shows that it takes 66 days to create a habit. So now we got to put in some extra work to create that muscle memory. 
That's why I created the SN Challenge, to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscle. To sign up, please go to petermargaritas.com and scroll down to the SN Challenge call to action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of yes and and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge. If you're unsure of what the YesAnd Challenge is all about, I discussed this in detail in Episode 0. Go back, take a listen. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase an autographed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership and Life, please go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and you'll see the graphic on the homepage to purchase my book. With that said, let's get to the interview with Maureen Sapala. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Maureen Zapala. And first and foremost, Maureen, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Seeing it today is what, uh, December 29th, getting ready for the New Year celebration. So thank you for taking time to be a guest on my podcast today. Uh, thanks for letting me join you, Peter. It's been, uh, it's been fun getting to know you, and I'm really privileged to hang out with you today. Oh, well, th- I, th- the check's in the mail. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Maureen and I have, were both members of the National Speakers Association and the Ohio chapter, but we really got to know each other earlier this year when we were in a virtual mastermind group and uh, uh, have, a lot in, have a lot in common. And she'll talk about a lot of what, what she speaks on, but I don't want to give away her background because I can't do justice to her background as she could do it. So, Maureen, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, let the audience get to know you a little bit before we start our conversation. Sure, Pete. Um, It's kind of interesting. I uh, started out as an engineer. I worked for 14 years, uh, almost 14 years at NASA. NASA has a center here in Cleveland. It's now called the NASA Glenn Research Center. But back when I was there, it was the NASA Lewis Research Center. I did research in jet engine propulsion, jet propulsion engines. Um, uh, we, long story, won't go into it, but uh, worked there for f- almost 14 years, quit to raise a family, and then started doing some speaking on the side. Now, it's kind of ironic because my background is mechanical engineering, went to University of Notre Dame, and uh, you know what? Engineers, we're really not known for our verbal skills. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to my group. <laughs> I know. I know you speak to a lot of accountants, a lot of, uh, you know, number crunchers, left brain thinking, logical, lineal type people. Um, but I found that I had a skill for communication and a skill for speaking. When I was at NASA, I was in a management position and had to make a lot of presentations. And my boss said I was awful. I was awful. <laughs> and I was. Uh, when I quit NASA, uh, I took a cash buyout, actually. Government was downsizing. Uh, joined Toastmasters. Oh. And yeah. Uh, and, and it's funny because I didn't join Toastmasters to become a better speaker. I, at the time, I was also selling Mary Kay Cosmetics. Okay. And because of my background at NASA, mostly men, men, color cosmetics, not a good fit. So (laughs) I needed to meet women. (laughs) So I say I joined Toastmasters to meet women. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm thinking maybe I should have sold Mary Kay products many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you can meet women too, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I no longer do Mary Kay, but I have uh, done a lot more speaking, professionally speaking. And, and I also, too, when I, when I give my keynotes and I talk about, you know, being an engineer as a speaker, it, it's just fun to bring up the contrast of how engineers were not known for our skills. But if I can do it, anybody can do it. And, and Toastmasters helped you achieve that goal, I take it. It, it did. It, it completely transformed my speaking, gave me opportunities to connect with people that could hire me as a speaker helped me to formulate my topic. And plus, it's a great, fun environment. Lots of fun people, lots of energy. Uh, it's encouraging, uplifting, celebration, applause. It's, it's a great environment. Yeah, I, when I, I, I joined Toastmasters not to meet women, but to, <laughs> do, to uh, learn, how, learn how to speak and do presentations in public. And, and I can still... To this day, see the person at the end of the table counting the ums and ahs. And they really do a good job of getting rid of those filler words. They really do a great job of, of taking that diamond in the rough and, and polishing it up. Yeah, I found the same thing. It was one of the first one of the first noticeable pieces of improvement I, I saw in my speaking, getting rid of those verbal crutches. Some people may take it to an extreme, but... You know, everybody's a little different. But I know that all of us can sit, we can sit in a sermon at church. We can sit in a meeting. We can even watch uh, newscasters or pub, uh, uh, public figures on television. And once you start to realize how much they are and um their way through, it starts to get distracting. <laughs> yes, it does. And, and you don't even know you do it yourself until somebody calls you out on it. And once you start being aware of it, then you can make the conscious efforts to eliminate it. And wow, does that make a difference? Yeah, it really does. And actually, um, there goes an um, and there's another um. um. <laughs> I, I found that after they pretty much got rid of about 90% of it, I had another verbal crutch that I didn't realize I had. It was the word, okay. Ah. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got evaluations back from one of the speaking engagements that they said, uh, I overused the word, okay. We've turned it into a game. Uh, and one of them said, yeah, we broke our lead. You said the word okay so much. And, and I, I never heard it until I went to teach that next Monday or Tuesday. And I heard it and I made my class over a two to three week period. Anytime I said the word okay, they threw stuff at me. They made raspberry oh, sounds. They, they did everything distracting so I would start to hear it. And, and yeah, because when you don't hear it or, or nobody calls you out on it, but it is very, very distracting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. So you do keynotes, you're a professional speaker now, but let's back up. Are you still involved with Toastmasters? I am to a, a much lower extent. I joined Toastmasters originally way back in, let's see, 1998, I think. I can't remember the exact year, 97, 98. Uh, took a few years off when my kids were really little. And now when they went back to school full-time, rejoined, uh, was really plugged into the contest series, uh, the contest side of Toastmasters. There's basically two sides, communication and leadership. Communication has a lot of contests. And I love to compete, and I did pretty well. But over the past, uh, and I competed again this past season 
actually made it to the semifinals of the world championship and had a great run. It was great. It was great. I know it was wonderful. It was fun, fabulous, exciting. Uh, I didn't even care that I didn't win because it was such a great adventure. (laughs) I still am a member of a club, but my biggest focus now has been contributing uh, as a, a writer for their monthly magazine. That's been, that's been a lot. I did not realize how much fun it was to write. <laughs> I mean, even as a speaker, I do a lot of writing to create my keynotes and to just brainstorm ideas, but to focus it on a magazine article about once a month, once every other month has been a, a real joy for me. So, and, and what are these, what are your articles on? What's the topic? I imagine it's a variety of topics, but. It is a variety because Toastmasters will come to me and say, here's a topic. Would you be willing to research it, find some people to survey or interview and write an article on it? I said, sure, why not? Like, for example, I'm currently writing an article uh, on the, the corporate clubs that are sponsored at Harley Davidson at their corporate headquarters. Oh, and cool. Yeah, it's really cool because I'm going to get a chance to interview some of the C-suite level executives and get some background on their corporate culture. It's it's really fun. So I'm excited about that. Where's, where's Harley-Davidson's headquarters located? In Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Okay. So, and, and the topic, oh, so it's more of a corporate culture, um, doing presentations within an organization or how did they get their start? What's the, the crux of the article? They're, they've got four corporate clubs up there right now. Their first club was started by a member of the IT team who saw that people in IT, and I'm sure you see it with accountants, and right. I saw it with engineers, they needed a little help with their communication skills, whether it was for an internal presentation they were making right. or maybe uh, just communicating with vendors or uh, customers, whatever. They just needed a little bit of polishing. Well, I, I- why do why why do so many people need to be polished per se as as you as you say is is it because of the fear of having an audience and having people look at you when you speak? Yeah, in fact, I just saw a, a statistic not long ago. Somebody polled a bunch of Toastmasters and said, "Why did you join?" I asked, "Why did you join?" Most people didn't join to get better at making presentations. They got they joined to get past what you just said the fear of speaking either to a group or even in conversation. They wanted to get they wanted to get past that crippling, mind-numbing, <laughs> body-sweating fear. <laughs> and I'll tell you, and I'm sure you probably experience it too, because you do a lot of speaking. Mm-hmm. That fear doesn't always completely go away. Oh no, I I never want it to completely go away. Yeah, because it is kind of energizing right. and it keeps you on your toes. But at least you know the now the the techniques and the the specific things to do to get past it. You know you you know your topic. You love your topic. You are an expert at your topic. You you know that you're there to give something of value to the audience. That's all part of diminishing that fear that most people don't know before they maybe even join Toastmasters. Right. I, I had somebody at one of my. I was actually doing a. Uh, presentation on public speaking and, and presentation skills and, and somebody in the audience it's probably about a year and a half ago said pete you you do this all the time i you probably don't get have any fear and i said i do have some uh and, and then they went but you don't know what the fear is because you've gotten so far past it you forgot what it's like oh no <laughs> and, and you know i kind of took that to heart and huh. i 
last year, well, well this year, uh, as you know, I, I've done uh, some stand-up comedy in my day, right. and, mm-hmm. and, and it's been you know on and off. But I decided to get back up on stage earlier this year, and for somebody who's a a professional speaker who can go eight hours, I was terrified. I I, I had those same feelings that somebody has if they're getting up to do a presentation within their organization. And I I had to use my improv skills in the words, yes, and just to get through it. But I, I same thing. I worried so much about it. Those internal demons were just beating me up. But after it was said, done, I kept saying, it wasn't that bad. And, and which really helped me to relate again with my audience. Go, hey, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what, you, what you're feeling. And it, and it is... To some, it can be absolutely paralyzing. Mm-hmm. It is, and and there's some validity to what your friend said about you know you've been doing it so long you don't know what it feels like. However, it's that you do know what it feels like, but you know that you're going to survive it. Right. And a lot of people don't know that they're going to survive it, and that's why they get shut. That's why they shut down. That's why they would rather go vomit. That's why they <laughs> would you know got to go pee in their pants. You know, whatever it is, they just they've not they're not familiar with this, and they don't know how to get past it. Yeah, that's that's true. But to going back to you know earlier this year, I forgot how to get past it. I mean, so. My my wife was out of town. My son had ski club, and he was going to get home about nine thirty that night. And that's what time I'm supposed to be on stage. And that morning, I Stephen, you sure you don't want me to be home when you get home? <laughs> I texted him at school, uh, and I texted him on the bus ride, and finally said, "Dad, stop it! Just go and do Uh-oh. your comedy thing." And, and I was trying to find an excuse, and but that that really that really did help me once again realize what others go through and, and getting up and getting past that, that fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Toastmasters helped you get past that fear. It did. Mm-hmm. And helped you become a, 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 obviously a better speaker to get to the world championships. Now, what, what, your, when you made it to the world championships, what was your topic? What was your presentation, your speech about? A little bit of background on the whole contest. It's a six year journey. Oh. Starts usually around February, around the around the world. Mm-hmm. Close to thirty five thousand people enter the contest uh, around the world in Jan- January February time frame at the club level. Then you go; the winners advance through different levels. By the time they get to the finals, uh, which is usually in August, that field of thirty five thousand has been whittled down to nine or ten, to, depending on the year. Wow. It, yeah, in 2009, I made it to the top 10. This past year, 2016, I made it to the uh, to the semifinals, which is about the top 85, 90, somewhere around there. Still very significant. Now, in, there's six levels of the contest. At each level, you can give the same speech until you get to the sixth level, the last level. You have to come up with a different speech. Uh, so in 2009, my final speech was on the topic of how to overcome pride. Now, it's kind of interesting because people are like, well, that's kind of a weird topic. Well, you know, you have to know your audience. Toastmasters, they really enjoy motivational, inspirational, character building, um, you know, set the world on fire, kind of dream it, do it kind of speeches. So I chose that topic, how to overcome pride, because I have struggled with pride my entire life. 
I had parents that built into me, told me I was great. And I think that's a good thing to do, to build into your kids and tell them they're great. But when they start to define their whole life by I am great, you have a problem, which is exactly what I did. I really, really thought I was like, you know, all that more. Yeah. So I had to, you know, life situations kind of knocked me down and um, really recalibrated my whole uh, sense of self. So um, I spoke on that topic and you don't just speak on a topic. You build in stories, you build in humor, you use metaphors and analogies, and it's a seven minute speech. So you have to take them on a pretty good ride in seven minutes. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Um, this past year, this past season, um, my semifinal speech was about basically rebounding after um, a setback in your life. Okay. I, I lost my parents when I was a teenager. Ooh. And so I, but that was a literally a trampoline into other great things in my life. I use that as a a springboard to talk about how do you bounce back from other things in your life? You know, is the pain in your life useful or is it, con- uh, is it constructive or de- destructive? Choose to make it constructive. So obviously well, you said something earlier, like, you know, your audience, you know what they're looking for. And, and in any type of presentation, the more that you can add some humor, oh, yeah. the, the, it goes a really long way of, of keeping them away from their cell phones. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you sh- I'm sure, you know, you know, being in the NSA, yeah. the, the line is, you know, you don't have to use humor unless you want to get, get paid. paid. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and humor does, you know, I, I, and I'm actually David Nihill, uh, founder of funny business. I think that's the name of it. I, I've kind of stumbled upon him and then he's talking about how to write humor into your stories and, and along those lines because you know engineers accountants when we have to do a presentation the more that we present present data the more we put more words up on the screen and don't build a story around some kind of emotional story and add in humor and stuff uh they're not going to retain it it's just it's just going to fall flat so the more that we can use humor in a presentation one i think he says after the laughter stops the listening the begin- learning begins. The learning yeah. begins, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the peak of learning comes after the peak of laughter or something like that, but along the same lines. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he says that, you know, and, and I believe this. He says, when, when you laugh and you hear that, you're more inclined to be more, what is he going to say next? Or what is she going to say next? Be more engaged into it versus, oh my God, I couldn't watch the grass grow and have a better time <laughs> listening to this guy. Anyone, anyone, Bueller, anyone, you know. <laughs> the famous Ben Stein scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> uh, so you've taken that you've gone from being a rocket scientist mm-hmm. which i can now i say i actually know somebody who, who's a rocket scientist well it, it's funny because i use that line a lot in my in my keynotes i'll you know i'll tell them yeah i have a background in engineering or jet propulsion i'm a genuine rocket scientist <laughs> but don't be impressed it just means that when i do something stupid you can say, oh, what are you, a rocket scientist? And I can say yes. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah, it gets a pretty good laugh. Yeah, we get a great one here right now. Um, so you've, you've taken all of that and you've built yourself a, a speaking business. And tell the audience what, what you speak on these days. Well, it's funny. I spoke for a long time on leadership, generic vanilla leadership. 
uh, as an engineer at NASA, as a manager, a, a, a lower level slash middle level manager at NASA, I figured, oh, okay, I can I can talk on leadership. I was led by great people. I led great teams, leadership. But there's a million and one leadership speakers. So what else <laughs> could I talk about to really co- to really set me apart? I read a book a few years ago called, um, let's see, I have it right here. It is called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And it was about something called the imposter syndrome. As I read through the book, I really felt angels were surrounding me and singing. I thought, this is it. This is so me. Because the imposter syndrome is an internal voice that usually strikes educated, successful, influential, creative people that have really made a mark in the world. And it's the internal voice that says, oh my gosh, everybody thinks I'm smarter than I really am. (laughs) Or everybody thinks I'm more talented than I am. Or everybody thinks I'm more prepared than I am. And, And so you think of yourself as an imposter. You think to yourself, I'm faking it and they don't know it. And it's just, I'm a millisecond away from being found out as a fake. When I read through that book, I thought, oh my gosh, I lived that at NASA. I lived every day I walked into work thinking, it's a fluke that I'm here. (laughs) Wow. It is an accident they put me in this position as a manager with all this responsibility and all this accountability. I mean, I, I... I was world known for the job that I did or for the position that I held. And I really thought it was only because I was a girl that they put me there. (laughs) (laughs) So I had, back then I didn't think of it as an imposter syndrome, but when I read through this book, I thought, oh my gosh, yes. And so I had to backtrack through my days at NASA and think, what did I say to myself when I walked into work every day that let me stay there and not go flee to the hills as a, you know, in shame. Well, I, there were some things that I did tell myself that, yeah, I, I did earn this position and I do have a background in this uh, field and I have a record of um, establishing relationships and making things happen. So I definitely had the criteria that allowed them to put me in this position. So I need to own it. So the imposter syndrome is, when I speak on the imposter syndrome, I teach people the things that I did for myself to get them through that that mind-numbing fear or that almost paralysis that says, I don't, I don't deserve this job and I don't belong here. Yes, you do. You did something right to get there. They are not idiots for putting you in this position. They're not that you didn't fake it. You didn't, you didn't snow them. You didn't, uh, it, it, you will legitimately own the right to be in this position. Now let's move on from here. I know what you think. Uh, yes, I remember when I was in the White House. I had, yeah. that, I had that same same. That when I took the, the oath of the inauguration, I was petrified. I said they're going to find me out. I know they will. <laughs> Bill, 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 come on! Keep interrupting these conversations I'm having. <laughs> but, but so. We were talking earlier, so is that you said that's that self confidence that that gets in the way uh, because you have to have that self confidence to get to that point. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of a paradox about it. It is 
people with self-confidence will take risks. They'll go to school. They'll, they'll try out for that position. They'll put in for the uh, transfer or the promotion. They will take on the responsibility. So the confidence gets them to that position, but yet the internal dialogue in their head makes them doubt not, their, not even their ability, but the right to be there, that somebody else made a mistake. So it's, it's, a, um, it is a, it's an unusual playing around of the cognitive, it's a cognitive distortion. It's this distortion of believing the facts. It's like they look at their own resume and they think, well, that looks really cool, but it's really not me. <laughs> but well, it is you because you created that resume. So it's not a confidence issue. It's a cognitive issue. Because confidence is more of an emotional thing. Right. Whereas the imposter syndrome definitely is a thinking thing. And I remember when I published the book and my friends, their comment to me was, does it come with crayons? (laughs) You wrote a book and it doesn't have crayons. What? Seriously? I remember when and fill in the blank. Yeah. And I'm for a couple, I laughed at them. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what the hell is going on here? Because I think I think I was to some degree going down that, that imposter center. Like, who, who am I to call? My, my mother would introduce me, my son, the author. Aww. I would introduce my son, <laughs> the author. And, and I'm looking at myself going, I don't, I don't, that doesn't, I never thought those words would be in the same sentence as my name. And it took, it took me a while to, I don't accept it. I don't know if that's the right word. Or I'm like, I'm not an author. I, I just... You know, and this, and I took the risk, and I had the self confidence enough to do it. But then I think once it was out there, it's like, what have I done? Yeah, see, that's what people that have, that have the imposter syndrome tend to discount their own accomplishments. Uh, and when you say it took you a while to accept it, acceptance is part of it, but really, it's identifying yourself with the accomplishments. It's like it is really owning it. It is really uh, putting you in the place of the person who did the work. And not somebody outside of you or uh, a set of circumstances that that allowed it to happen. I mean, you created it, you did it. Now you need to own it. So it's 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 a it's a tough it's a it's a big leap for a lot of people. Oh yeah, I, I can I can I can see that just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so what what groups what groups do you speak to? Is it any all? Because I imagine most people who are successful entrepreneurs in corporate America, they they might be a little bit hesitant to come to a, a presentation on the imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, it's it's really interesting that you say that. I I speak I will speak to entrepreneurs. I'll speak to tech groups, engineering groups, uh, professional uh, associations. The common thread is that they, they are the target audience. They're educated, influential, successful, uh, accomplished. I've spoken to blue-collar workers, line workers. This doesn't resonate with them because it, they're just, that's just not their world. Their, their job is their, uh, it, it's, they have a different identity. But it's interesting that you mentioned, I don't know if I want to go here and talk about imposter syndrome. I, I spoke last year at a conference called Code Mash, which is the biggest conference for uh, computer coders. So these are tech people on steroids. This is, you know, <laughs> this is the heart and soul of, of our you know, communication industry. And the name of the talk was called uh, How to Impose Your Imposter. 
And I put it out there. And then later on, I realized it's probably not good marketing. Who's wants who? Because anybody, like you said, anybody who walks into that room is admitting they're an imposter. So it's like, oh, okay. Yet the room was filled. I thought it was going to be mostly women because mostly originally the imposter syndrome was identified as a female thing. Of course, now I know that it's not now. It affects men. Men and women respond to it differently, which is a whole nother uh, question. But the uh, coding world is, um, it is a male dominated industry. So there were hundreds of people in this session. And it was really cool because as I read the tweets afterwards, the tweets blew my mind. Over and over, I said, wow, I was surprised to see so-and-so in there. It's good to know I'm not the only one. Oh, wow. That was a light bulb moment for me because I realized, and one of the points I make in my keynote about the imposter syndrome is the imposter syndrome is both uh, magnified and alleviated within community. Now, it's it's magnified in community because when you get, when you're by yourself, you're, you can be your own rock star. You could say, I'm, I'm a rocket scientist <laughs> of the best. You know, I'm, I'm really awesome. <laughs> but you get into community with your work, your workmates, your uh, uh, peers, then you start to feel a little, oh, I don't know, I'm not as smart as they are, or I'm not as accomplished as they are, blah, blah, blah. So the imposter voice starts to get louder. But it's diminished when you get in community, when you realize, wow, I'm not the only one. But the only way that happens is if people start to talk about it. So what I do in my, in my keynotes is that I give people the permission to start the conversation. I'm not going to ask them, raise your hand if you feel like you're an imposter. Although I will, I'll say that in the keynote, I'll say, well, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think you're an imposter, but the very fact that you walked in the door kind of gives it away. So let's just all get it out there. <laughs> and that, that breaks the ice yeah. and, and it starts the conversation. So it's both magnified in community and diminished in community. And that's the turning point for a lot of people once they realize, wow, I'm really not alone in this. So it sounds like group therapy. In a way, it is. <laughs> you know, on a very high professional level. Exactly. Uh, but I, I did make a note to ask you, where does ego come into this? Huh. Uh, and I'm talking about a very large, strong ego. Does it, or, or does it come into play here? Does that, does that, does that strong ego make it that, oh, hell, I am far from being an imposter. I am the greatest. I haven't done research on that, but that's a really good question because on the flip side of the imposter syndrome is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger effect. It's not quite on the opposite, but if you were to call it an opposite, this would be the closest thing. And if you ever, have you ever seen, um, uh, you know, talent shows like The Voice or American Idol? I've. Not a lot, but I've seen, yeah, some of them. Well, American Idol is really good for this. They, especially the early versions or the early parts of the series, they'll go out into the field and they'll find really awful oh, singers yeah. and have them sing. And then the judges are, are telling them, you know, go find another line of work. <laughs> yeah. And the singer walks out all oh, storming, stomping, man. They don't know talent when they see it. Well, people that suffer for the Dunning-Kruger effect think that they're way more talented than they really are. Oh, Okay. Imposters 
are not convinced that they are as talented as they are. So ego tends to be more along the line of the Dunning-Kruger person. Okay. They really do have a, a very inflated sense of self-importance, sometimes even narcissists or other people that have suffered from borderline personality disorders. People that are that do suffer from imposter syndrome, but yet are afraid to admit it or think, oh, no, that's not me. I wouldn't say that's ego. It might just simply be they're not yet informed. And once they realize what it is, what the symptoms are, how it may have held them back, how they can overcome it, they tend to be a lot more open to exploring the idea. So share with the audience a couple of things that if somebody's listened to this one, Oh, good. I'm glad I'm in my car. Nobody sees that. Okay, I think I'm an imposter. But what what advice would you give them to get past this this syndrome per se? One of the first things is is to realize you're not alone. Okay. Many people suffer from it. When you realize you're not alone, you can start to have your radar up to look for opportunities, maybe to talk about it more or to. Uh, maybe even that you just have the internal dialogue with yourself that says, I'm not alone. I really am as good as my resume says that I am. The next step would be to realize it. there is no possible way you can know everything about the position you're in, about the technology you're involved in, about the company you work for, about the reach that you can have. There's no possible way. So you need to let yourself off the hook from needing to know everything about everything. Another thing I tell people is it's okay to say, you know what? I don't know that yet. Or I don't know the answer to that. Let me get back to you. Or let me put you in contact with somebody who can tell you. Uh, I know that when I was a job, when I was the engineer at NASA in the management position, I was terrified that somebody was going to ask me something that I didn't know the answer to. Terrified. And it never occurred to me to go ask for help, <laughs> go find somebody who knew. I really felt that because I was the manager, I had to know. Well, that's not true. So, you know, you practice saying to yourself, I don't know yet, but let me get back to you. Or I don't know, but I'll find out for you. Or I don't know, I'll put you in contact with somebody. It's interesting you should say that because in an er- earlier podcast within the last few weeks, I don't remember what episode, I'll see if I can find it real quick. I was interviewing a gentleman by the name of Matt Horan, and we were talking about leadership. Now, Matt uh, went to the Naval Academy. Uh, As he said, spent six years out at sea. Um, And we were talking about leadership. He said one of the first things he learned about leadership is just to what you said, I don't know everything. And if I'm in a meeting and somebody asks a question or they're talking on a specific topic, topic, he would go, okay, can you help bring me up to speed here? Because I'm not quite sure. But it said it took him a little bit of time uh, before, I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if he said the word courage or whatever, but he realized that it, he doesn't know everything, and, and even though as a leader, we're perceived to know everything, but he, he had to ask those questions. But I thought that that ties right into with what you're saying. Yeah, it is. And you know what? There is a a level of respect that you earn when you admit you don't know everything and that you're willing to ask for help. There's something weird about it. It, It's welcomed by the people that hear you say that. You need to accept it in your own head that it's okay to say that. Well, I think the people are looking at you going, oh my God, he's human or she's human. And not only are they saying, wow, he's human, but they also might be saying, 
pick me, pick me. I want to help. Exactly. <laughs> I know the answer. Yeah. I can help. <laughs> I, I, I can get in front of the boss and look better now. Uh, but Jed, I think, you know, and, and as we move up any type of ladder uh, in our careers that, there, you know, I, I think one thing, especially with, with linear thinkers, we love to be right. Mm-hmm. We love perfection. And, you know, when I, when I talk to my, my audiences about standing in front of an audience, I said, first thing you got to do is like, oh, the perfection, because you will mess up. Uh, and I said, especially like if you're in a Q&A and you get asked a question and you don't know, don't BS that audience because somebody out there knows it and they will thread, rip you to shreds, hopefully not in public, but after the fact. But, it, but. You know, I, I gave him a couple of tips. I said, if you don't know the answer, but you're pretty sure, ask the audience if anybody knows it. So maybe somebody will chime in, which will give you a few more minutes or seconds to think through. And maybe you do know it. You had this little block. I said, if not, then you ask. After this, come up. Give me your business card. Or I'll write the question. I'll research it for you. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I would ca- put the caveat there. If you're doing it, you get a 10-minute Q&A. And after the 10-minute Q&A, you've got 10 business cards. <laughs> yeah, you got you, you didn't do your work. You didn't do your homework. If you walk away with zero or one, yeah, you've you've done a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Good point. But it's letting go of that perfection because we love being right and and, and saying one, I need help or I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's I think that actually might be even scarier than doing a presentation for some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, we just um, feel like our identity is tied up in what we do and what we know. And when we say we don't know something, ooh, there's chink in the armor. But right. that's not true. And I call that the Sheldon Cooper syndrome. Sheldon, oh, from... from uh, Big Bang. Yes. Because <laughs> he's right about everything. Everything. And, it, and that perfection, even when he's wrong, he's, he's right. <laughs> so I think a lot of people, as I, well, and you were talking about... Um, you said this doesn't resonate with blue-collar workers per se, but I, I bet it does when that person gets moved into a management role. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. that gap at that point has to be huge. It does because I think there's a flaw, and I speak from my own experience coming in, um, in engineering with NASA, government facility, but I've seen a lot of parallels in the industry and manufacturing and sales, even sales organizations. Uh, they will promote from they'll promote into management from the technical positions. Not smart because they're not trained to be managers. They're trained to be technical experts. So you lateral them into a into a management position and don't give them the right people skills, the right management tools, and it's sink or swim. And the sink or swim, boy, I tell you, that's the breeding place of the imposter syndrome. It really is. Because, and I take this quote from Peter Drucker, he says, we're we're using the Peter principle. We're we're promoting them to their level of incompetence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to your point, because we haven't provided them with with the necessary people skills to become that manager role. And and now if 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 I'm a technician, I'm working on the line no matter what I'm doing, and I get moved up into a manager role, I, I you know, I still want to be buddies with my buddies, but I'm trying to also manage them. And, and But who am I to be here? And I can, I can just imagine that dynamic is probably maybe even 10 times worse. Yeah, and it does depend, too, on the corporate culture. 
Uh, it depends on the, the your own personal culture, where you came from, the childhood messages you got, the uh, incidents in your life that shaped and formed you, how you view relationships and people and success. I mean, there's just so much that goes into the feeding this imposter sense, this feeling of being a fraud. So if anybody in my audience are, is listening to this, go, man, I got to get her in, in, into my organization or how can, how can people find you? I am probably one of the most findable people on the planet. <laughs> I am. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you for telling me that because I will be calling you sick. Bill, go away. <laughs> oh, that one's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but my um, my website is maureenz.com, M-A-U-R-E-E-N-Z.com. My contact information is there, my phone number, my email, um, on Facebook all the time, uh, a little bit on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. and LinkedIn, but Facebook is is my happy place, so I'm easy to find on Facebook. And it's Zapala, Z-A... Z-A-P-P-A-L-A. A-L-A. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're based out of the Cleveland, Ohio area. Right. In Cleveland and Akron, a little town called Medina. Oh, I know Medina. I had, some, I had a, a, a good friend that used to live in Medina named Peter Cordy. Mm, don't recognize the name. Uh, the, Medina's not, I shouldn't say it's so little. It's not quite so little anymore. It's, it's, it's grown into a wonderful, nice community. Well, Maureen, thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I realized a few things about myself that maybe I didn't at the start of the conversation, which is always good. Self-awareness goes a long way. Um, I've enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to seeing you at the uh, upcoming NSA Ohio chapter meetings. And, and by the way, she is the incoming president of our chapter beginning in uh, the summer. So she's got a lot on her plate. Uh, and you know what? You talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I hear it loud and clear. Because as you know, our chapter president now, Lisa Ryan, total rock star. She oh, yeah. is just jamming. And uh, so now I have to step into her shoes. And she's a good friend, dear friend. I know she'll be in my back pocket as I take over. But still, you hear that voice that says, can you do it? Is this an accident? Should I even be here? (laughs) And the answer is yes, you should be there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, when people will be listening to this, this will be out in uh, February released on February 27th. So since this is the end of December, have a happy new year. And I look forward to seeing you at the meeting in July, in January. Woo! (laughs) Back at you, Peter. It's been great. Appreciate it. Enjoy your New Year's too. Thank you. I'd like to thank Maureen again for taking time out of her schedule to give us ideas on how we can get past the fear of public speaking and the imposter syndrome. Lots of great advice Maureen has given us. In episode 40, I interview Phil Kim, who's an associate professor of business at Walsh University in Canton, Ohio. He's also the founder of IdeaPath Consulting, which is a management consulting firm for entrepreneurs and small business owners. Our discussion is around his very powerful TEDx talk that he gave in Albany, New York, titled Chase One Rabbit, The Power of Small Wins. Thank you again for listening, and remember to use yes and to get past your fear of public speaking and dealing with your imposter syndrome.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.